The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We had uh, what looked to me at least like a very dovish Jay Powell on Wednesday with just a mini hike, 25 basis points, almost didn't even notice that. And then um, talking about dependency on data and didn't give a straight no to the question of whether they thought about a pause in the meeting. Um, just generally, you know, he thought financial conditions were tightening, which we're still not sure what index he was looking at. Um, that uh, may change after Friday's jobs number blew away the estimates and showed that this U.S. labor market is still red hot, regardless of the West Coast pink slips that we report on every day. Let's bring in Liz Kappel-McCormick to talk about this, chief correspondent, global macro markets for Bloomberg News. So did Friday, you know, change uh, the path for the Fed? Well, I... I think you want to hope that even despite Powell sounding dovish, they had a plan. They kept saying higher for longer. Maybe, but they're he, data dependent, so I it doesn't know, matter. What, whatever know. comes next is, you know, whichever way the wind blows is the way they're going. I know it's a rough road, but I think Friday kind of locked in. You saw a lot of the street economists say, you know, those who are forecasting two more, three more quarter point hikes said, oh yeah, we're good. You know, I mean, it was just so strong all across the board. You know, it was kind of head scratching, but no one kind of wrote it off as like a quarter or something so uh, I think it did definitely we figure out what it was because uh, a lot of people did try and write it off I didn't see any credible arguments um, but it wasn't just the most recent month um, they also revised previous months higher it just looks incredible yeah and I was listening to our Mike McKee and he went through it all and he didn't couldn't find any reason to like write it off you know like you said the revisions were higher I mean, maybe some people say, even if you took out some of it, it's still strong, right? We want to be kind of below 150. I mean, not that we want people out of work, but to kind of cool the labor market a little and bring inflation down further. What does that then mean for the bond market reaction? I think it was up like 16 basis points on the front end of the curve just off that report. The equity market was kind of like, meh. <laughs> but the bond market was very much reacting to it. But even with not, that reaction. And up another 12 today. Yeah. I mean, 440 on the two-year. Exactly. Yeah, say 361 on the 10-year. But it's still within its range. Yeah, but look at the terminal rate. So finally, like, like Matt was saying, Wednesday, oh, people thought Powell was kind of dovish. The terminal rate where the market sees the peak for the Fed came down even further. They were like locking in 50 basis points of cuts coming by the end of this year. Now things have changed a little. They got the terminal rate back up towards like 5.1%, which is about around where the dots are, the Fed's dots. And there's less than uh, half a point of cuts in there now. So I think the market kind of got a little religion on Friday to say, 
ooh, you know, maybe we've gone too far. You know, maybe we kind of were wrong-footed in the impression of Powell, or even not, even if we th were right, now these jobs data is so strong. Now, we have another jobs report, right, before the next Fed meeting, so let's see what happens there. We have the inflation numbers, but I think the bond market kind of got a gut check, you know, that maybe we've kind of leaned too far. Like, what's the new trendy thing now they're saying? No landing, you know, you know, some yeah. people saying soft landing. Maybe there's no landing. I don't know about that, but uh, I think the barn market at least at, is hedging, and we have a lot of supply this week coming with the refundings. Yeah, and about 96 billion. I was going to say for debt auctions. To your point, that is a lot of new supply in addition to a lot of the M and A deals, by the way, that are I think being funded mostly by debt. Yeah. Um, what does that then do? What do we expect this week? Well, it's been crazy. This year, the auctions have gone like crazy good. You know, not that I don't want them to go well, but like so many in a row, yeah. the yield came below the, where it was trading right before the bidding, which is a sign of strong demand. So people are saying, huh, maybe not this round. 96 billion yields aren't as high as they were. Um, now we think the Fed may be higher for longer. It's going to be a real litmus test of how strong is this demand for treasuries. So we'll see. Well, what does it mean? To, I mean, if, if uh, you know, bond auctions are going great and M&A activity picks up and, um, you know, we're adding 500,000 jobs a month or even if we're adding 250,000 jobs a month um, and inflation is coming down, then the Fed is pretty cool on its um, – you know, wandering path of, of dovishness. Well, but is dovishness, like the market was pricing dovishness, cuts? Uh, you know, should they wander to cuts? Uh, there's a lot of people who say, like... Uh, why does the market price that in? Is it just hope springs eternal in the uh, equity market or in the, in the uh, uh, fixed income market? I think so, and they have to be leading. And to be, all, to be fair, there's some optionality in that, right? If yeah. you're a trader, you've got to price, let me hedge myself. There's some risk of cuts, so that's going to bring the implied rate in the futures down. Um, but I think, you know, it's, I hate to say like Pavlov's dogs, the market is so, you know, trading the pivot. We've got to get ahead of the pivot. And they've been wrong a lot. Um, not that the Fed hasn't been wrong on many things, to be fair. But I think the market is just thinks, like the old playbook, the Fed has to pivot. But, you know, if inflation, even if it comes down, 4% is way above 2%, you know? Yeah. And if the growth is going okay and we don't have a bad recession, why does the Fed have to cut anyway, you know? So I don't know. I think we could be sitting here in December and saying, Good point. Wow, the Fed didn't even cut this year at all. They just stuck at five whatever. That would be a new thing. As long as the economy is humming on all cylinders, um, if inflation is coming down, uh, we're adding jobs, M&A activity is good, um, you know, earnings aren't a drop of 20%, then they might as well leave it where it is until we have a problem. And Powell said on Wednesday, like, we, we see more risk to, t to turning to, you know, easy policy too soon than going a little bit too far, because we yeah. can always cut later. And I think that was a very telling point, you know, they want to err on the side of maybe going a little too far, quote unquote, then turning course too fast and having to restart. They don't like that stop-start right. kind of thing. But then how do you factor in, say, the ECB, the BOE, if you're looking at what could be some very volatile days ahead for, for the boon market specifically and the gilts market, how does that translate or at least affect the treasury market? Well, it was interesting. Last week, I thought Lagarde did a nice job at her press conference. I thought they were hawkers. That market rallied too. Yeah. So there's a little bit of this uh, uber euphoria going on all around. But if, if Well, she was saying they intend 
to raise rates. Right. 50, right? She was pretty But it's clear. just an intention. Yeah. They're I not know. they're not locking in there, you know? Right. Well, what are they going to do? They can't write a legal contract saying yeah. we're for sure hawking. No, I'm just saying, like, you know, across the board, you didn't really hear forcefully hawkish language. You heard a lot of optionality, which I'm not saying that's the wrong move. Right. I would want optionality, too. I'm just saying the way the market interprets that is dovishness. Well, and like you said, the central banks have to kind of set the stage, right? Even if the stage means a couple quarters away. I don't think anyone can argue, we were talking to some of my colleagues, that bond vols come down a lot. That's a good thing. And people are saying, at the least, give or take two more hikes, three more hikes, what the ECB does, whatever. We're getting closer to the end than last year when we had this big hill to climb of tightening, right? So I think bond vol coming down is telling, to your point, that yeah, they're getting closer to the end. Whether the Fed just kind of hikes to whatever's terminal for them and just sits there for a year, that's also good for vol. If we know, hey, Fed's sitting still, and maybe in 2024 they cut. I'm not predicting that, but we know, like, somebody was saying to me the other day that last year, every meeting you were like, is it 75, is it 50, is it 25? At least all that has kind of narrowed down. Right. The range of outcomes for the Fed, the ECB, other central banks, I would say – has narrowed. It's but you, so um, I think last year, late last year, Danielle DiMartino Booth was telling us she thought Powell was trying to kill the Fed put. And, you know, you point out that everybody wants to trade the pivot. You know, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It never happens. But this isn't kill. He's not putting it to bed with that kind of language. None of them really are. Um, they're all kind of leaving it open. And, and that leads to looser financial conditions, which could lead to more inflation. That's the problem, right? Right. And I think you're right. Like, no one wants to go against the chairman of the Fed, but everyone was kind of like, what? Wait, financial conditions are tighter than a month ago? What are they looking at? So I think, uh, he, yes, he's right. Long run versus last year, they're tighter. But that, you know, some people are saying, like, things are heating up again. The housing market's picking up a little bit. Like, they don't want things to heat up again, right, which is inflationary. I mean, not for nothing. They've brought inflation down a lot, but it still has more to go. And a few people smarter than me have said, you know, the hardest nut for inflation is the final, like, few percentage points bringing it down, getting it from the uber high to here, you know, took oh, a lot like of time. It's like these timing. last five pounds. Yes. <laughs> Killing me. <laughs> so true. So true. Poor, poor, poor Matt on the last five pounds. Uh, Liz it's McCormick, thank you as always. My Chief pleasure. Markets Correspondent. Um, she kind of does a little bit of everything. Bonds, dollar, stocks, anything you need. Right, Matt? Yeah, and we're very happy to have her. Thank you very much. She wrote the cover story as well with Katie Greifeld on uh, the latest edition of Bloomberg Businessweek. And what a timely cover story that is. Definitely check out the Don't Fight the Fed uh, edition. Or wait, wait, we are fighting the Fed <laughs> edition. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's bring in Priya Misra. She is Managing Director and Global Head of Rate Strategy over at TD Securities. Priya, what was your take on the incredible roller coaster ride that we had last week after the Fed um, and the non-farm payrolls? Sure. Thanks for having me on. It's been quite the week. Um, so I think 
you know, I think the, the market is dealing with both uncertainty on the economic outlook, and that's what we saw with both payrolls as well as ISM. Very strong numbers. We're not seeing signs of slowdown there, at least in the labor market or even service demand. I actually was more interested in ISM services because I think that's going to be a leading indicator and so far not really seeing moderation. But then the other source of uncertainty is the Fed. And there was a, there's a clear lack of urgency from Chair Powell, from the Fed, to keep hiking. And he was very non-committal. I mean, I was surprised a little bit with the reaction on Wednesday because I don't think he was dovish per se, but he didn't push back on the easing of financial conditions that we've seen since December. He was very non-committal on the end point, like where do they end hikes and sort of left it to the data. So I think it's going to really come down. I know there's a lot of focus on tomorrow's uh, comments by Chair Powell, but I think they're data dependent and it's very hard for the market to get you know, exactly where the end point is. We're going to have to watch the economy and inflation. I think there's a lot of optimism that inflation will keep declining. And our view is it's going to be sticky. And so you'll get a series of 25 hikes as the Fed ends, but they don't end what the market was pricing in on Wednesday, just one more hike. We expect two more hikes, possibly chance of another 25 in June if inflation sort of flatlines here and doesn't keep declining. Well, Priya, let's put some numbers on that here. We're looking at 10 years, Matt pointed out, higher by about nine basis points, 361. As the bond market is factoring everything you just laid out, is it kind of being a little wishy-washy and just kind of sticking into this trading range? Why aren't we seeing it break out? I think the 10 years is really tricky, right? Because that's your view on Fed funds in a way over the next 10 years. And so that incorporates a slowdown you know, later this year, next year, it incorporates rate cuts at some point. I mean, even if we get a soft landing, the Fed is not going to keep rates at five or five and a quarter. They're going to have to bring it down. So I think the 10-year likely stays in a range. 325, 375 is the range we're thinking. The front end, I think, can break out. If we find that inflation is sticky, um, wages are staying strong, then I can see front end rates going back to the upper bound of the range, maybe even moving higher because we realize oh, the Fed's not cutting. We have a lot of cuts priced in for this year and next year. I think they can start to get taken out. That terminal rate can go higher than where it is right now, like just above 5%. We can get to five and a quarter. So the front end can absolutely sell off. I, the 10-year the does get tricky because it's a longer, you know, it's your view over uh, you know, the, the next 10 years. Why do you think the Fed is going to have to cut if we're uh, adding jobs um, at such a fantastic pace and um, we don't see such a huge drop in earnings? I think right, down, right now we're looking at a 3% drop in earnings last quarter. Um, what, what's going to be the impetus for the cut? Great question. So I'm going to go back to the Fed's dual mandate inflation and growth. So our view for rate cuts, we've actually got a lot of cuts penciled in for next year's because we're looking for a recession in the base case. And we see inflation, I said it's sticky, but by next year starting to get within the three, two and a half percent range. So cutting for both sides of the dual mandate. But let's say we get this, what we're calling immaculate disinflation scenario, right? Where inflation continues to fall, soft landing, every risk asset to the moon. Even in that scenario, I can see the Fed cutting rates, which is embedded in their dot plot, right? They've got 100 basis points next year and the year after. That's not for growth reasons. That's for inflation reasons. And because the Fed wants to get, at that point, rates away from restrictive into, let's say, neutral territory. So if inflation gets back to two and a half by the end of the year, I think there's a case for the Fed starting to cut because Fed funds at five or five and a quarter is too high. 
we should be closer to two and a half or three percent. So that's the reason to cut. The timing, the pace would depend a lot whether it's a recession or a soft landing scenario. But the rate cuts is just if inflation comes back down, whenever it does, I think the Fed then starts to signal rate cuts. All right, Priya, thanks so much for joining us. Priya Misra, their managing director and global head of rate strategy over at TD Securities. We love to get her take on uh, the Fed and the fixed income space. And we hope you to have her on again very soon and talk to her a little bit longer. Let's bring in uh, Andrew Merrick right now from Raymond James. He's the VP of Equity Research. And uh, also has many, I'm sure, thoughts on chickens and eggs and all yeah, that jazz. Yeah. Do you also spend so much time trying to understand the eggs? Well, it's a real chicken and the egg situation, isn't uh, it? Oh, no. <laughs> well You're well perfect done. for this. Uh, all right. Let's ask about um, what your reaction was to last week. Because just I, I spent the whole weekend talking about last week's news with people who don't even participate in markets. I mean, it was just that dramatic. Um, with the press conference on Wednesday and then the jobs number on Friday, does it change at all your views, what we saw? Well, so in the gaming sector specifically, I mean, you know, the economy and those types of reports are going to have some impact, but gaming has proven to be a pretty resilient form of entertainment when it comes to economic conditions and things like that, because when you're buying a game $60, $70, you get quite a good value in terms of the number of hours of entertainment out of that. So Hell yes. <laughs> Sometimes I'll be playing like Red Dead Redemption and realize that nine hours have gone by. Gone. Yeah. Hundreds of hours. And that happens a lot, by the way. You know, and with Call of Duty and, uh, well, I used to be a big Halo guy. Okay. Um, it just flies. By. Do you play, Critty? Do you play any games? I don't, but I have to say when, um, what was it called? Red Dead Redemption? Red Dead Redemption first, 2. Red Dead Redemption 2 was first released. I think it was 2018, I want to yep. say. I was on the video game beat, and they gave us like an exclusive trial or whatever it was like all these other video game analysts and everyone was so excited and it was like a bunch of dudes and i was just like why am i here i actually asked myself the same question when i'm asking <laughs> when i'm playing red dead redemption so uh you think activision blizzard and what are the other names in the gaming industry that you follow yeah the big ones right now are activision blizzard ea and take two interactive and uh, you, you think they're set up for continued gains? Yeah, I think that, you know, we'd seen over the past two years since the pandemic, there was kind of a moderation in the amount of time that people spent playing. So there was a big spike around the pandemic onset where people were cooped up, found gaming as a nice social outlet when you couldn't see people face to face. And as things started to reopen, get back to normal, people played a little bit less and less. Now I think we're entering a more normalized environment for demand where the success of the companies and the stocks are more dependent on things like how good are the coming games, how good are the current games, rather than things like are people playing less, those more exogenous factors. What about meta? I mean, how long until we start yeah. spending all of our time in the metaverse? Yeah, the uh, the new frontier of, of VR in the metaverse. I mean, um, a lot of these games are pretty metaverse already, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, I, I think that's one thing that the traditional publishers, if you want to call them that, the Activisions and Take-Twos of the world would say is that we already integrate so many of those digital community-focused aspects that the metaverse, really, um, the metaverse really advertises already in our games. Our games are already massively online, multiplayer environments that are living and breathing. Um, I would say the, probably the only 
big difference is that you're not wearing an immersive headset to play Call of Duty or Grand Theft Auto at this point. I think that there are still probably some gains to be made on that virtual reality side. It'll probably be a little bit more incremental rather than big leaps and bounds. Um, but I think that that's something to keep an eye on maybe as like a five plus year driver for the gaming space. Isn't there a story out somewhere that a lot of the games from, uh, I believe it's Activision, like Star Wars, for example, has been delayed to the tune of, I want to say, six weeks. Um, what kind of effect does that have on a bottom line for the likes of Activision or Take-Two or whatever? Yeah, so the the Star Wars game, the EA game, um, six-week delay, when you get those smaller delays like that, in terms of the bottom line, it can move a quarter. Like the Star Wars game was moved from the end of one quarter to the beginning of another. But in general, in terms of the expectations for the lifetime sales of that game, it doesn't really affect it too much unless you think that the delay is a signal of the upcoming quality of the game, which we do not. Um, where you start to get into the more um, the delays that more affect the bottom lines are those ones where the games get pushed by a few months or even delayed indefinitely um, because the project isn't progressing as, as they liked. We'd seen a couple of those over the course of the pandemic where work from home kind of upended the development cycle. But as we've gotten you know, used to work from home, uh, people back in the office, we're seeing less of those major impactful delays that would really um, hit bottom lines. You seem um, pretty grounded uh, for someone who has a minor in nuclear engineering at MIT. <laughs> I mean, you talk about these incremental changes. Are there any like moonshot um, stocks out there that you like. I, I'm just thinking about yeah. that because um, we heard so much earlier this year about the uh, a possibility to uh, create basically a perpetual motion machine with fission or fusion. I can fusion. never remember which one it is. <laughs> um, and, and we and we see these big bets at like Facebook, you know, putting 10 billion a year or whatever into the metaverse, right. but it's so far off. Right. Yeah. And I think that Facebook specifically, like they're interested in that metaverse project because it is kind of what they view as the next major step change in digital life and digital interaction. You know, we went from offline to the internet, and now we're going to go from the internet to the metaverse. I think they want to be owners of, of that change in the way that some of the platform owners that Facebook is not a part of at this point have kind of owned that shift to the internet. So I, again, you know, I think it's more of a long-term shift, but it is definitely something to keep an eye on given the sums of money invested and given the promise that the metaverse holds. So, but who are the big competitors? Is it just Roblox? Is there somebody else that you think is going to be a winner here? Yeah, Roblox is kind of what investors view as kind of like the pure play um, in metaverse at this point. I think you're probably going to see a lot of companies who come up through the ranks of, of venture funding um, who probably aren't household names at this point, who are specialists in the metaverse and in VR, in that kind of digital interaction that maybe come a little bit out of left field. I think that's a very interesting interesting space to to keep an eye on and you know we'll be we'll be following it with great interest as well in our last uh 30 seconds or so here how did you go from a minor in nuclear engineering like why aren't you not like a mad scientist somewhere at mit at yes. mit nonetheless <laughs> well you know the um the the jobs outlook at at uh nuclear fusion at the time was <laughs> was not as promising as it is now the old saying was 
Um, Fusion is 20 years away, and it has been for the last 60 years. Um, <laughs> but now, uh, now we've got it, and uh, you know, the eggs on my face. You know. Well, <laughs> we're, we're glad you ended up where you are because yeah. now we get to talk to you in the studio, and hope we can get you back Absolutely. in here uh, soon. Andrew Mack, there, VP of Equity Research over at Raymond James. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now let's get back to uh, the markets here and bring in Jay Hatfield. He is the CEO of Infrastructure Capital Advisors. And finally, we have a bull on the program. Um, we were just talking about David Costin lowering his expectation for the S&P 500 uh, to 4,000 three months out and at the end of the year. So he doesn't think the market's going to do a whole lot of anything except for drop. Um, why are you, and I believe you have a, a, a higher target, a 10% higher target for year, and why are you so bullish, Jay? Thanks, Matt and Critty, for having me on, first of all. We're bullish because we're far more optimistic that inflation, that not only is, is inflation declining, but that we're actually in a deflation. And the reason for that is that we do have an inflation that's very, very similar to the 70s. In the 70s, we had two gigantic energy um, uh, crises uh, in 74, 150%, 79, 200. And we had loose monetary policy and high inflation in housing. It's exactly what we have now. But housing has rolled over. Um, it's been down five months in a row. So that's why our index, CPI-R, is negative, uh, annualized 4% over the last quarter. And that's really what's been we think has been playing out so far this year is the rest of the world is kind of coming along around to that view. Wait, what's the index? CPI-R. So it's a real-time CPI index. We'd be happy to license it to Bloomberg and you can put it is, on the is it, Oh, so this is a proprietary <laughs> index yeah, that website. you have infrastructure capital advisors. And does it remove um, housing or how does this differ from the <clears throat> typical CPI index? It's, it's not very exotic. It's really going back to do inflation exactly how it was done before 1982 when they switched from just taking housing prices and then having a um, rent flawed measured measurement of owner's equivalent rent and, abs and actual rent. Problem with that is then you introduce a 12-month lag because housing prices lead, of course, there's a survey that slows it down as well, but it leads the uh, BLS index. I think last time I'm, I was on, can verify that on the terminal and do regressions, 70% correlated. So you get the information 12 months in advance and it's 70% correlated. So the Fed is focused on the labor market. In certain markets, labor is important. But when goods are, um, and particularly energy, is skyrocketing and then dropping, goods actually drives labor or wages more than vice versa. And we think that the Fed will eventually come around to that view. And in fact, Lael Brainerd you know, mentioned something along those lines. Unfortunately, she's going to potentially move off the Fed, but so there are some doves on the Fed. So we think by May they'll halt just as they said they would, and that'll be a big catalyst for the market. Well, if you're looking at the inflationary story, how does the commodity uh, standpoint factor in there? Uh, mm -hmm. For example, one of the things that uh, Tom Keen and I were actually speaking about earlier on Bloomberg Surveillance was 
why is Brent crude with all of the bullish reopening themes not at 100 right now? Why mm -hmm. is it at, well, now we're looking at 79 yeah. uh, handle. What is going on with that commodity? Well, um, the real key driver is the weather. So we're four and a half degrees warmer in North America, which tracks Europe pretty closely as well. Um, and that's a key driver during this. Warmer than time. last year or warmer than the <clears throat> average? Than the 100-year average. I got it. Okay. So, um, but even the near-term average were well, well above normal. It's at 50 degrees in Manhattan right now. So <clears throat> during this season, heating oil demand is really critical. So that's taken um, some edge off of it. And really, the Russian situation, oil is fully fungible because you, it's easy to transport. You can do rail. You can do um, trucking, shipping. And so that really hasn't been a big impact. And that's really why um, you haven't seen the big increase. But I would also focus on natural gas. It's off 75% from its highs, 25% from the beginning of 22. And keep in mind, and the Fed doesn't seem to focus on this, even though they have a paper that validates it, there's a 5% bleed through uh, from energy prices to core. So if you get natural gas down 75%, that's going to be a big um, help to inflation coming down. But nobody seems to focus on it. They don't really care about natural gas because you don't have to fill your car up with it. It's, it's half of the energy cost of a consumer comes from natural gas because it prices electricity as well. So that's a big bullish factor that nobody's talking about as well. Also helps a consumer because they have more discretionary spending. By the way, when you're trying to figure out what Jay Powell and co are going to do next, it sounds like you have a view on what the Fed should do and what the Fed does do, right? right? Um, what changes in your mind what they should do to what they do do? And I know I just said do do, but <laughs> I mean, is it a political issue? Is it a lack of independence? Why do they, you think, make these mistakes, even though they have the research backing up your view on what they, what they should be doing? Well, it is a little bit of a political issue because labor economists tend to be Keynesian, which tend to be Democrats. And Biden has appointed five out of the seven permanent members. But having said that, even some of the, the Trump appointees were also Keynesian. So monetarism is really not well represented. And I, by the way, you know, if you're just trying to make money in a market, you shouldn't be either. <laughs> in, right. in some markets, a monetary policy dominates, like when the Fed increases the monetary base 70 percent and then down 20. That's going to be the key factor. If monetary policy is flat and you head into a pandemic, then you better be looking at the labor market. So for us ordinary humans who just have to make money, it's better not to be too ideological. But there are Keynesians clearly dominate the Fed at this point. They're too focused on the labor market and not enough on energy prices and housing. And they created the housing bubble. So that's one reason we developed CPI-R. It's the smoking gun for bad Fed policy. They, if they had just followed that, they would have started tightening in 2020 and not in late 21. Are you at all factoring the debt ceiling when you look at monetary policy? The last time uh, we had kind of a debt ceiling crisis, we were in a tightening, uh, excuse me, a easing phase mm -hmm. of, of the economy. Square the two for us. Well, there's no doubt that that's a big risk for the stock market if we get closer and closer to a, a showdown. But there is a factor that rarely gets discussed, definitely not in the media, and that is crowding out. And I would go to Greenspan is really the expert on that. So just out of control federal spending is a problem. And there's only one mechanism in federal law to limit that, which is the debt ceiling. 
So the notion that we should just automatically increase it because we owe the bills, I think is a little bit overblown, but we're not worried, too worried about a crisis because the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is a bipartisan caucus, has pretty much said they're gonna come to an agreement. And I think that's the right outcome. You know, obviously you don't want to default, but you shouldn't just ignore the only limit that we have on federal spending, whereas the states almost universally have balanced budget amendments. <clears throat> so uh, we think that in the long run, it'll be good for the stock market. It is a risk factor. And one thing to know too about, we have a 4,500 target for the S&P, but that's a year-end target, not a end of, <clears throat> of February target. Yeah. So we're going to have a lot of volatility, right. and we think we'll be a little bit range-bound until the Fed pauses. And this will be one of the factors that, you know, bears will use to, you know, as an excuse to trade the market down. Do, do you think that, I mean, with a 4,500 year-end target on the S&P, does that mean we're going to have also $80, $90 barrels of um, – WTI and $100 barrels of Brent? Yeah, that would be, the midpoint of our range is $90 per, per barrel. And keep in mind though, that's still off the highs of $120. So it's not gonna be a huge uh, problem for CPI because you do annualize all these increases. And I would just go back to natural gas where we're at 250, that's where it's been, that's like near the lows for the last 30 years. And natural gas, it doesn't go into your car and it doesn't sort of go on this wheel that everybody gets excited about, but it's very critical because the price is all electricity in the United States. So you have the natural gas part of it offsetting the oil. Yeah. All right, Jay, great having you in the studio. Thanks so much for coming in and joining us. Jay Hatfield there, CEO and founder of Infrastructure Capital Advisors. He talks about his um, proprietary inflation index, CPI-R, which you can get on his website, infracapfunds.com. Now, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. We're going to focus in on the balloon. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's bring in Wes Kosova. He is the Bloomberg Big Take podcast host. And, uh, you know, Paul and I love these Big Take stories. Um, they're kind of the first thing we talk about when we get to work in the morning every day. And I assume that Critty reads them, too. Critty does read them. And I Big Take. Well, uh, Wes, are you zooming in on this big balloon? What's the story uh, with with the podcast today? Well, we actually just try to get to the bottom of this whole thing. You know, last week when that thing was kind of floating above Montana and it was making its way across the country, it seemed like this kind of curiosity, a little alarming, Chinese balloon with a lot of equipment attached to it. But no one could quite know what to make of it. Um, and then it became pretty clear that there is something very unusual about this situation. Uh, I mean, it's big. Like, if you think about these weather balloons or even those kind of big balloons that can kind of take pictures of sight, this thing is as big as two or three school buses, just enormous. And, it and that's the like payload you're talking about, right? Not the actual balloon. Because yeah. I keep seeing references yeah, to the balloon giant. being two or three school buses, but the balloon isn't what we're talking about. We're talking about the thing it's carrying. And it had a lot of different kind of equipment. They still want to know exactly what. Uh, and then there were these growing calls to shoot the thing down. Well, you're going to shoot down three school buses. Who knows where it's going to land? So, Well, in Montana, uh, so it won't hit anything. I mean, yeah, there's I suppose, like nature yeah, and animals. You can never tell. You can never tell. And also, you know, when it did eventually come down, when they shot it down, 
it uh, you know spread debris for a seven mile radius. So well, that's a lot of things it could have hit. So anyway, it gets across the water of South Carolina, and they order this thing shot down by fighter jets. And now there's this whole incident between the U.S. and China about what that thing was. China claims it was a civilian science balloon that drifted off course. The U.S. says there's no way that's true, that it's not plausible. And so tensions between the U.S. and China already high are now higher as a result of this. Wait, Wes, I'm confused. I I feel like airspace is something that is monitored by the FAA all the time. And if you go even higher, I'm assuming by NASA at some point. Why didn't anyone see this on the radar when it's so big? Yeah, we talked. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit on the podcast. Um, I talked to Roz Matheson, who oversees all of Bloomberg's government coverage, and she, you know, has been all over this story. And the interesting thing about these balloons is exactly what you're saying is, you know, we have satellites looking down, we have everybody looking up, and yet China seemed to think that either this wouldn't go. You know, like it would go unnoticed or maybe they didn't intend for it to go there. Um, and one reason why these balloons are still used is that they are sometimes able to evade the usual means of detection. They're hard to hard to see. This one, though, is so huge that, that it was impossible to miss. And to be clear, we did see it. I mean, we tracked it coming in over Alaska um, yeah. and then through Canada. I feel like there's ample places uh, to have shot it down with a seven-mile radius. But, of course, you don't want to lose the gear, right? The, the key is we want to get to that gear and find out what it is, who made it, what they're doing. Right, and that was the other the other thing. You know, I mean, it's really easy to say, oh, just shoot the thing down. But I don't know. Would you want to be the one to make that call and be responsible for what it might hit? And then, of course, aside from that, let's say you really were in a desolate place. If it just uh, smashed to smithereens and you lose the ability to find out what exactly. it was all about. Well, uh, it is- but by, by the way, do you think um, this f- caught our attention or, or scared us or freaked us out because just because we can see it? Since we all know that the Chinese have satellites um, with super zooms on them, right? They can already see everything that we're doing with the satellite. They don't need a, a balloon necessarily. It's actually like a step back in terms of technology. So why do we care so much? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's something that I asked Roz about too. And in fact, these balloons, despite all the satellite technology, uh, have other kinds of capabilities, are able to read and detect and measure different sort of things that satellites which are way up in space can't do. And so it's not just China, but the U.S. and a lot of other con- countries are investing more in these balloon programs. And this balloon was the one that, you know, got caught. And we all saw it. But uh, it seems that there have been any number of these balloons flying around, and the U.S. flies them too, that that do sort of go unnoticed because they're smaller, they fly beneath radar, and they wind up not being detected. But what about the ones, I mean, and now there's, I believe, reports of another one, I want to say Latin America, but Bolivia, I want to say. I mean, what is the international response to this? Right now, uh, it's really cast sort of a light on because you're right. Uh, China, in particular, has used these balloons for various reasons, uh, in many different countries, they've been seen, you know, crossing uh, space. And I have a feeling that we're going to start to see more of an international discussion about does this violate, you know, 
international, international borders and sovereignty in a way that maybe we haven't before, just because it only takes one thing to call attention to it, to bring something that it may be, you know, simmering under the surface into the light. Yeah, if it's a, under the Carmen line, then it is our airspace, right? And this was well under the Carmen line. Um, uh, you talk about our balloons and our spying. We're so mad right now about the fact that the Chinese are spying on us. Do we spy on them too? I, I'm asking well, I mean, you have sarcastically. To, you have right? to assume, of course. You know, <laughs> right? Exactly. I mean, of we're course all, we do. Yeah, and so it really is kind of when you don't see it, you don't really think about it. But this seemed either really bad, sort of mess up where this thing for one reason or another was where they didn't want it to be or it would appear to be pretty brazen because something that big you would think they wouldn't believe would go undetected what about the uh now that it is shot down it's underwater now isn't it across yeah. uh, off the coast of south yeah, carolina apparently not very deep but still doesn't that yeah, so there's uh, divers destroy the equipment yeah this is another thing we talked about which is you know they want that stuff uh there's a question of Will the water destroy it? Did it have any sort of self-destruct mechanism so that it would, you know, be destroyed before anyone could get to it? And they just don't know. They're going to get this thing and haul it out, and I don't know that we're going to be finding out exactly what was on it anytime soon because you could imagine that they're going to keep secret a lot of the stuff that they find. So, uh, of course, we'll be reporting, trying to find out everything we can to, to tell our listeners, viewers, readers all the way that we uh, – uh, try to tell people what's happening in the world. All right. I hope when we build our balloons, we do include a self-destruct mechanism. It seems like a no-brainer, right? I mean, sure. Yeah. In <laughs> any case, we can learn lessons from the Chinese. Wes, thanks so much for joining us. Wes Kosova, their host of the Bloomberg Big Take podcast. They're focused on um, the alleged spy balloon. And, uh, of course, now we know it's been shot down by an F-22 Raptor, which is pretty cool in itself. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.